Travel is one of modern life's great gifts. The ease of our ability to traverse, explore and uncover new places has become a relative second nature. As we surmise the totality of our experiences, our reminiscences of travel tend to occupy the top tiers of our respective memory banks. Travel is the fuel that powers imagination. It confers the meaningful opportunity to connect with humanity in an array of unique ways. It's the starting point for immersion in nature and the illumination of our precious natural wonders. Travel is contradictory in the best possible ways. It's both deeply personal and something that is often shared. It's money spent, but riches gained. It yields the perspective of the small place we occupy on this planet and the context for our existence all at once. Perhaps most fundamentally, it's an incredibly fun way to occupy oneself. The Joel Found Podcast talks with incredible founders, entrepreneurs, and creatives about their experience of travel. We'll hear the origin stories of their brands, how travel has played a part in their success, and get a taste of how they like to travel. Here's a chance to imagine you've strolled into the first class lounge and found a seat next to someone who's going places. The story of Kath Will's career and the creation of Sun's Beast is quite remarkable and certainly unique. Following an extraordinarily successful and enduring professional life at the peak of the Australian fashion industry, including a stint as the concurrent managing and creative director of Mimco, Kath took the giant step of starting her own accessories brand from scratch, Sans Beast. Launched in 2018, Sans Beast, literally meaning without beast, is an ethical brand that makes its super stylish products without using animals. Sans Beast has been a massive hit with animals slash fashion lovers everywhere, and you're likely to have spotted a Sans Beast branded strap in the coolest parts of town. Being at the front of an important movement has certainly added complexity to the startup phase of her business, but Kath wouldn't have it any other way. In addition to running her fast-growing business, Kath finds the time to mentor other entrepreneurs. I've been lucky enough to benefit from her wisdom from time to time. Today, we'll talk about her career beginnings, how she balances the ethical and commercial at Sun's Beast, and find out where her work has taken her around the world and how she likes to travel. Kath, welcome to the Joel Found Podcast. Thanks, Joel. Nice to be here. <laughs> I'm glad we get to have this conversation in this format. I know. We've had many good conversations. We have. And I've really appreciated your encouragement as we've launched Joel Found, so thank you for that. Obviously, we start at the beginning. Yes. Tell me about you as a child. Were you creative? Yeah, I was. Um, I was a very shy child, but, you know, I loved playing with dolls, making things for the dolls, playing in the garden, dress-ups, like I loved dress-ups. Um, and it wasn't really until we moved to the US as a family that the shyness had to had to go uh, because you just don't survive as a shy kid in the American school system. How old were you? I moved over when I was 10 and we were there until I was 12 and a half. So I finished primary over there or elementary and I did a year of junior high. And in the scheme of your childhood, how do you remember that time? Um, look, I think it was just such a foundational time for us as a family. Um, for me as an individual, it was, you know, it was a bit of a brutal school system and I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for the time, you know, upstate New York is a beautiful place to live. We weren't, you know, we didn't, I think we went to the city to, you know, once we weren't a cosmopolitan family. I mean, I didn't have that sort of exposure, um, to culture and fashion and style. Uh, but I definitely am grateful for that time in my life. Well, it made you a worldly as a child already, right? Well, I would say I was very non-worldly. Um, I mean, I guess in the physical sense, I was worldly that we'd lived over there. But coming back to Australia, um, you know, settled back into the eastern suburbs um, in Wonturna and, um, 
yeah, I don't think my worldliness really started properly until I started traveling for business. Right. It's a so, good segue for you, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, everything comes back to where, where your life has taken you. Yeah. So in thinking about that childhood and the creativity, how did it manifest? Did you make things? Did you design things? Yeah, I, I drew a lot. I mean, I started drawing when I was about nine. My dad was into drawing as well. I think it relaxed him. So we would spend a lot of Sunday afternoons drawing together. I was into drawing cartoon characters. The original or copying other characters? Copying, yeah. We had, um, I've still got the books. They're, they're sort of a how to draw different characters and sort of build from the ears and all the rest of it. It was, it was a good sort of learning ground for me. So I was drawing since I was, let's say, eight or nine roughly. Um, and then when I started in business, uh, I, was, I was still very hands-on creative. Like I remember making handmade gifts for my boss, my bosses at JAG, at Palmer Corporation. Wow. In hindsight, I'm sort of a bit embarrassed about it. Um, they were sweet enough to sort of accept these, you know, these handmade jewellery pieces. And I made my friends in high school printed T-shirts with sort of 3D elements on them and, you know, they were all accepted with a <laughs> smile. But I think back about some of these pieces and I'm not entirely embarrassed. I'm actually pleased that the young Kath Wills had that vulnerability and I think that's an important thing to have in your life. I mean, I think as we grow up we get used to shutting down that vulnerability and, you know, it's more embarrassment that covers our eyes and our our ears, but um, I, I make, I'm making an effort to embrace the fact that I did that and be proud of the fact that I did that. That's so insightful, you know, that, you know, we're conditioned to suppress some of those things, whether it's yeah. in a professional context or yeah. social, but it actually is what I guess makes you who you are, you know, the, yeah. the, those vulnerability points. So I think that's an amazing <laughs> recognition and to sort of now do it as you're further down the line. I try and do the same thing. I think, you know, I've, I've stopped being ashamed of the weaknesses and the vulnerability. Yeah. Well, the vulnerabilities, they're not weaknesses, are they? True. I guess it's like how we've been we conditioned. We see them right? as that, you know? yeah. What did you study at post high school? I didn't go straight to uni post high school. I worked for about six years. Wow. So um, I was a young school starter. So I finished school when I was, I wasn't 18. I was 17 and I didn't turn 18 until halfway through the year of my first professional year. So I worked in an office in recruitment um, and then I decided that I wanted to be in the fashion industry. So I got a job in retail. I worked for Benetton um, and then I I got a job as a uh, like a junior um, fabrics um, design assistant, like, you know, basically a junior burger uh, at JAG, at Palmer Corporation. Was this when it was flying? Um no, I wouldn't say it was flying. Um, Rob Palmer had passed away. Adele right. um, was still running the show with Clegg. Uh, I, you know, I was, uh, whatever, 20-year-old from Wonturner coming into Richmond to Palmer Corporation. It was just such an eye-opening. I loved it. Like all these people were fashion people. I didn't I didn't know how to pronounce Versace. Like I thought it was Versace. Like I was really quite, quite the suburbanite. Um, and I had a couple of great mentors there that, thank God, you know, taught me things. But no, it was, it was you know, well, So that was challenging at, on, the, on the river in Richmond, right? Yeah. Yeah, the big white building. Yeah, yes. so, which is now the sports girl building. Yes. But funnily enough, my first job was around the corner from that building and that, the, the in-house cafe used to be open to... The Palmerazzi. Yes. Mm. And it was amazing. Did, it was. So I might have seen you there, but... 
who yes. didn't know each other because we used to go there often for lunch and there were really nice ladies who ran it from Yes, memory. well, different people ran it over the years. I was, um, I was married at the time um, and my husband ran Palmarazzi for a short period of time as well. It was difficult to get caterers to come in there to, you know, to do it. It wasn't necessarily a, an easy way to make a business. Anyway, I was there for a couple of years and uh, had a short stint of resigning from there, going and living in London for three months with ex-husband, Michael, um, and then came back, went back to Parma and then decided that I wanted to study. Just to, just to go back to London, what, yes. what took you to London? Oh, look, we were kids. I mean, I, I was married at not even 22 and we just wanted an adventure. So we quit our jobs and moved to London, uh, didn't have any money, didn't have a plan. We lived in a basement flat with another friend. Um, I think there was a rat in the kitchen. It was, you know, it was pretty putrid. And we lasted three months. We were just naive, starry-eyed kids, really. Um, and I'd also, my dad had died when I was 19. So I was, in hindsight, I realised that early 20s period for me was a really tumultuous time. Like I didn't, I wasn't making decisions with, um, with wisdom necessarily. Not many early 20s people no, necessarily it's, it's pretty do. young in hindsight, yeah. But it does sound like you squeezed a lot of different things into a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I think I've always done that. I think I still do that. So came back from London. Yeah, went back to Palm Corporation, worked, had a great little um, chapter there, had some really great mentors there and then decided I want to study fashion design at RMIT. So I would just go home and sketch. I didn't know how to build a folio. Had, had, had someone told you, you should be because of what they'd identified in you that you should pursue this or you just no, thought I was, need to just, do this for me? It was for me, yeah. And how did you identify RMIT? Because it's very well regarded. I just went to the open day and thought, and my dad had actually, uh, not fashion design, but dad had done night study in engineering at RMIT. So I just, you know, I'd understood that that was sort of the premier place to go when you wanted technical as well as creative skills. And so you were obviously coming into your tertiary education later than your Oh, yes, peers, I was a mature age student. Which is, at 25 at sounds very crazy. 24 now. I was, and 25. I was married. I had a hyphenated <laughs> wow. name. I thought I was very grown up. Did, did they look at you like, classmates look at you like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Well, I didn't, it's not that I looked, I mean, I looked pretty young. It's not like I, you know, necessarily looked so much older, but I thought I was so much older and I was you know, had an air of superiority and seniority to me, which some would say hasn't exactly faded over time. Um, anyway, that was three years. I was fortunate to get in there. You know, I didn't, yeah. once I went to RMIT and I met other students that had come straight from high school and they'd come from private schools that had amazing art departments that had supported them building a folio, I sort of thought, oh, my God, like I've been going home at night drawing, hoping that they will see something in me that allows me to get into this school that's quite difficult to get into. Yes. Um so I had a brilliant three years there and then I went to Country Road when I came out. I'm going to ask you later about the brands you look at now and the founders and creators mm -hmm. that you look at, but at the time, do you remember anyone being a, a, a person you aspired to or a brand that you aspired to? I wouldn't say at the time. I mean, look, I mean, after a year of studying fashion design and discovering Dries Van Noten, uh, you know, he, he became sort of my favourite designer and probably still is, other than the fact that I don't really buy much from the brand given it's so animal product centric nap now from a creative point of view um that is a brand that i admire so you finished your fashion degree 1996 and went to country road 
I did. I came out of RMIT and I wrote to two businesses, CR being one of them, and I was just fortunate that um, I, I had interviews with both of the businesses that I wrote to and my CV just landed on a desk of someone that was looking for an assistant and I managed to get a role in the knitwear department as an assistant product developer for men's knits and tees and I just worked and learnt and I guess was given opportunities um, to be exposed to the technical knowledge that you needed in terms of yarns and machines and all the rest of it. Uh, a year into CR though, marriage split up um, and I, you know, was probably not in a great space so I chuffed off to London again. Back to London. Back to London, yes. Was there anywhere else on the list or you English speaking, a lot of Aussies there. Was that? Yeah. Uh, the, the lots of Aussies thing wasn't the appealing factor. It was more, um, I had ancestry and I knew that I could work there. And I had friends actually living there and I knew that there'd be a little bit of um, support there for me because I was a bit bereft. So so tell us about the London, the sequel experience. Rats? Any rats? No, no rats. Oh, I did find good. a nice place in um, in West Hampstead. Yeah, it was it was a it was a good experience. It was nearly a year. Um, I grew up a lot. I um, had a different relationship there. I just tempted. I didn't work in fashion. I just needed to pay the rent. Um, I'm a very good typist, so my my word speed was very handy for getting that good hourly rate up. And I did a bit of travel um, when I could afford it, and um, and then decided after a year it was time to. Come and get back on with life. I imagine it gave you an incredibly different view of fashion because it's so expansive in London. Yeah, it did. It did. I mean, I um, I think things happen in your life, though, at the right time. I do think I was certainly interested in how I presented and in style. And when I first got there, I went for a couple of interviews and I realised how poorly paid people were in the fashion industry in the UK, particularly at my level. Like I wasn't a senior person and I decided that at that stage and age I was 28 it was just about earning money being able to socialize do the occasional travel um, and just put the career on hold for a while I love London I spend a lot of time there mm -hmm. I think it has incredible there's a lot of incredible style there different types mm. but you actually walking down the streets you see so much good fashion mm. men and women yeah um Different to, different to Australia. So it's obviously much more European yeah. influenced. I think London has got great style and I think London also is great from a travel point of view. I just remember as um, at that particular stage of my life, if you didn't have um, access to money, it, was, it could be a difficult place to live. Having said that, there's great museums, there's great galleries, the parks are amazing. So, you know, I think as a traveller... London is still a great destination just for walking around and absorbing. Your London stint the second time ticked the box and you come back to Australia? Yeah, I did. I mean, I just needed to sort a few things out, like sort of jettison the toxicity that was between myself and the 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 ex-husband, um, make sure that was all good, get back on the career. I think it's really interesting. I mean, obviously I'm biased to the benefit of travel, but I think it's really interesting how to physically put yourself in a different place can really help emotionally or developmentally yeah the outcomes are aligned yeah I I think that it is beneficial to the soul and the emotional health for a portion of time but the issue remains at some stage you've got to come home 
I don't think changing the backdrop um, makes problems disappear. Didn't think we were going to get deep into relationships, Joel. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is what I like about this <laughs> format, right, that you don't know where you're going to go. Yes, exactly. Um, so you're back in Australia. Yeah. Where do you land in terms uh, of work? Well, I came back and I'd let CR know that I was back in Australia um, and it, it happened to be that there was a, a great maternity cover coming up um, that they offered me that role. Uh, which became a permanent role and then it became a more senior role. They were combining men's and women's knitwear, so I became knitwear design manager. And then parallel to that, there was an opportunity for when I first came back to Australia and to see uh, to go to the yarn fair in Florence, Pitti Filati, um, to go to Hong Kong, work with the knitters in Hong Kong and China. Uh, so the travel, I, I remember coming back from London and going back to Country Road and thinking, this is this is where I start building my career. Um, seriously and travel is going to be a part of it and um, you know whether you believe in manifestation or whatever you believe in um, for whatever reason that definitely came to pass very quickly. I've always gained a lot from traveling um, professionally, personally, energetically and it started then sort of 1999. Well I, I think the interesting takeaway there is this idea of the consciousness of the career that you want and you know, if we can maybe advise younger, the younger audience that, that everything in your life professionally, you know, you have to chase, nothing yes. gets delivered to no. you. Um, and so that expectation, you know, maybe you learn over time and through experience. Mm. Um, but really this drive that you need to succeed is is not a myth. Yeah. I mean, I look, I, I worked incredibly hard. Um, I didn't worry about the hours. I didn't, you know, the notion of overtime wasn't something I was thinking about. It was about doing a job that I was proud of doing. Um, and, you know, travel was a part of that. Like you work longer hours in, when you're traveling and it's not like you come in and put a little ticket on your boss's desk and say, actually, you, you now owe me 12 hours. It's just like, I made that choice. I didn't do it because it was toxic hustle culture. I didn't do it because someone was breathing down my neck saying, you have to do this. I made the choice that I wanted to work my ass off in order to learn more and be exposed to more. And when you do that, you actually, you do, I think, rise above the, the mediocre masses that aren't willing to do those things. Like it's a competitive landscape. I mean, I, I think I sound old when I say <laughs> that, but that is actually how I see things. And you're right. So talk about the transition to MIMCO, at what point that came about. Yeah. And I think, you know, the MIMCO origin story is another podcast entirely, but mm. I'm keen to sort of understand where MIMCO was. And obviously most people would know it's an incredible Australian success story brand-wise. Definitely. But talk about when you moved into that business. Was it part of the CR group at the time? If that oh, happened? goodness, no. No, no, no. Um, so I stayed at Country Road until um, sort of the end of 2003. And I – so I was there – um, sort of six years all up, like the beginning bit um, before marriage breakup, came back, evolved to knitwear design manager and stayed until Christmas or so, 2003. Uh, I then started freelancing, um, just putting myself out there as a hired gun in the knitwear space. And six months into 2004, I got a call from Amanda Briskin um, and she wanted some help on knitwear, wanted to grow the knitwear business. And I came in as a freelancer and did that for two years. Oh, 18 months until the end of 2005. And then for various changes in her business, she uh, needed someone to work on the bag side of things. So 
I came in um, sort of freelance again and then just three months in um, we both just, well, it wasn't like a looked at each other over a glass of wine, but we both just recognised that we had Simpatico and we were working very well together and I said, I don't want this to be freelance, I want I want to be here and she's like, I want you to be here as well. So became design manager. And this was when it was rapidly growing, when stores were opening? Yeah, I mean, the, the it was definitely growing. I mean, what, what was done pre-Witchery Group acquisition was a lot of growth. It was, um, you know, it was an amazing business. So... I, st- I was there from, I don't know, June 2004 as a freelancer, came in as a permanent person in 2006 and then August 2007 they sold to Witchery Holdings um, and it took a couple of months um, and a bit of argy-bargy but then I became creative director and then um, and I was working alongside um, a great guy who was GM um, of operations and he decided that he wanted a tree change, so he moved to Barrel, and I took on the commercial side of things. I really want to hear more about this because it's it's, <laughs> I, it's very unique, yeah, and it's, it's uncommon, um, and it's often you know viewed as different parts of the brain, yeah. And you did it very successfully, so I think it's worth really explaining, you know, how those roles look yeah. and how you manage to do them concurrently. Yeah, I I would say with support from a few key people for sure and that's not to diminish the absolute sweat and tears that I put into it. I worked ridiculously to the point where um, I, you know, I was was often not pleasant to be around. Um, I was tired. I have an amazing partner in John and, you know, he was the he was the rock at home that ensured that the house was clean and food was made. But I was getting home at nine and I was getting into the office at 7.38. And then, you know, letting my hair down on the weekends to sort of alleviate the sort of the stress of it, which is just, it was just a emotional cocktail of sort of, wasn't always bad, but it was definitely, I gave it everything. Let's just say that. So I think one of the things I'm curious about, because, you know, in my job as founder and my experience, I've had to ride that creative and commercial. yeah aspect and I think one thing I like about my creativity and we talked about it a little bit before is mm-hmm. the attunement to your emotion mm-hmm. but obviously that comes with the downside of mm. feeling things more deeply more strongly when you're stressed or when things are going yeah. well so is that where a lot of that emanated from what you talked about in terms of the being around you or the stress well I think um we were trying to do it so when Witchery Group acquired Mimco um you know, Witchery was already bought by private equity. Private equity's aim is to grow the business. And we were on a very steep growth trajectory. Not only was it opening stores, it was launching new categories in a very short time frame. Um, and not just new stores in Australia, but launching into the UK as well. And we launched in the UK in October 2008. And I don't think, I don't think most people could remember what October 2008 was like. So we planned for a UK opening um, in a very buoyant, excited, Australia's on fire, we're on fire as a brand and then, you know, the wheels fell off the economy. So it was it was a result of we didn't have a senior team at Mimco. I didn't feel supported all the time. But ultimately, and I think when one gets angry, it's usually because their friend just recently told me this, you know, we feel things are unfair. We feel that we've been let down. And I think I was feeling that I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't cope with it. And so I was projecting that out. It was Look, it was an intense time. And this is another podcast episode entirely, but I yes. think a lot of this probably has to do with the um, 
how systemic some of these things are and how patriarchal a lot of the commercial world is. I have to say, though, I mean, I got a, there's a few key men that were hugely supportive of me. Not all men, obviously. No, I, don't, no. but, but, <laughs> I hate that saying. <laughs> but I think that, you know, I see this often in mm. the commercial world where, you know, the idea of a leadership is meant to be really confident and kind of narrow. Oh, and equally, I mean, I, I, I had a great, um, the CEO of Witchery Group at the time um, who went on to be the CEO of CRG and then the CEO of David Jones for a chapter, um, Ian Nairn, he was very supportive. I think he could see that I worked like a Trojan. Um, I learned a lot about leasing, about P&Ls, wages. You know, I learned a huge amount. And I think there were things that he forgave me um, when I, you know, wasn't as as polished as I should have been. Well, I think we we, we can't be good at everything as, no. as much as we personally like to and maybe others around you would. I think yeah. that's something that, again, that comes with time where you try to focus on your skills and improve things. But I I think it's a real mistake to try and be good at everything. I I absolutely agree. What I was going to say was equally, I have been slotted into the the creative, irrespective of the the evidence being there, like during the CRG years of being the managing director and having, being accountable for both sides of the business, having some great people in my team, absolutely. But being accountable for both sides, but being told on a regular basis it's great that you've got such and such because you can just get on with being creative. And I just used to think you, you do start to believe that about yourself and it's not really until, I mean, even though I knew the truth, I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure I can read a, and present a P&L. I'm pretty sure I'm doing recruitment and strategy writing and all the rest of it. But it's not until you start your own business and you don't have that great person there and you are doing it that you think, uh, actually, I do have both sides of my brain firing on all cylinders and we don't, none of us have to fit into a mould of someone else's perspective. I'm not, I'm not going on a man bashing tangent, but I do think that <laughs> sounds a bit patronising. It's totally patronising. <laughs> and if I could swear on this podcast, I'd be dropping you can, a few you can of them. Swear. Oh, we haven't sworn yet, but I feel really? like you should open the floodgates. I'm oh, not, no, no, It's no. just words. They are floodgates. So I want to understand the, the decision to leave Mimco and how that yeah. led to Sun's Beast. So yep. tell us about that time. Yeah, so um, I, um, as, as I said, I, I sort of signed on full-time in 2006. Uh, so time was ticking along. I'd gone through the Witchery acquisition, the Country Road acquisition. I was feeling like it was coming Groundhog Day for me. The business was in a great position financially um, and team-wise after going through some really challenging years, um, finding the right people, etc. We had a great culture. Uh, but for me, it wasn't feeling, probably by mid-2015, it wasn't feeling like it was my journey anymore. So I started making mental plans to exit when we'd passed the 20-year birthday, which was going to be February 2016. Parallel to that, I'd watched Cowspiracy and I'd stopped eating meat. And I started exploring other documentaries, reading other books. I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation and this gnawing voice in my mind started to say, this is definitely not the right space for you. The leather environment is not where you want to be. Was that a conversation that was happening in Mimco at the time at all? Because it was early in the kind of ethical movement. I had loved animals for a long time. I've got used quotation marks about loving animals, yet eating animals and their products. We definitely talked about, um, you know, working with good factories and working with reputable tanneries. And I shut down the side of my brain that said, 
the tannery doesn't actually have anything to do with where that animal's been raised or how that animal's been treated. So by 2015, that voice was getting louder and certainly the more documentaries I watched and the more books that I read, it started to be a voice that I couldn't ignore. However, I can't say that, you know, it got to the resignation point and it was this strong, glamorous, I'm leaving here and I'm starting a vegan brand. It was, uh, you know, I was scared about not earning any money. I was scared about not having a title and seniority. I was scared about being, um, even calling myself vegan, which I wasn't at the time, because at that time I just thought, oh, but I'm not one of those people, you know, I'm just not eating meat. And at the time I'd, you know, really been um, hardly eating dairy as well which I definitely don't eat anymore. So it wasn't um, flames of glory. It was um, it was a slow burn towards recognising that that chapter had to come to an end. And I resigned in Feb 2016. I had a long notice period. I left in June 2016 and I travelled for three months and gave thought and had anxiety and had an identity crisis and ruminated on what I was going to do next. Were people approaching you? With yeah, other opportunities. Yeah, definitely. There were a lot of, well, there was a solid handful of opportunities at the time. And as I said, I was fearful about money, status, ego. And I, you know, I genuinely considered some of them. Um, oh, I wouldn't start my own business. I mean, I don't, at this age, like, why would I do that? You know, who knows whether it's going to succeed or not. Um, and John, my partner, is not um, particularly into risk and he's like you're not going to start your own business you know you're just going to go and work for someone else there were opportunities for sure uh and it wasn't until the christmas of 2016 that i decided that the only opportunity i'd pursue would be consulting which is what i did with um the private equity firm that owned crumpler at the time um but any permanent opportunities i was saying no to uh because i knew that i was already starting to walk down the path of putting a plan together for my own business so tell us about that plan. Well, interestingly, um, well, I don't know how interesting it is, but... It's all interesting so far, so I'm okay, sure this fabulous, is fabulous, fabulous. Yeah. So when I left Mimco, the first stop was Bali before we went to Europe. You're dropping travel into this without prompting as well. I know, it's great for, it's great for job I was fans. starved <laughs> in 2020, 2021. So I went to Bali um, with John, stayed with some great friends um, in Jimbaran Bay, and I actually put a deck together um, for a plan for a brand. Um, and I was like, non-animal, without animal. And I came up with the name at that time. And then I, I was like, what are you working on? And I said, I'm just putting some plans together for, you know, what I could do. And he's like, you literally left last week. You know, you need to just take a break. So I shelved that plan. And I also thought the name of the brand was too um, heart on sleeve. I thought it was too vulnerable. Um, without Beast, I just thought, oh, I'm really just showing my heart to everyone. I need something cooler and colder and, you know, just a bit more um, removed from me and where my heart lies. So I didn't do anything with it for another six months or so. Um, but then when I came back from travelling, um, I started consulting and by May 2017, backing and forthing on things, I thought, no, this is exactly the name that I need to call it and registered it, trademarked it, engaged a branding agency um, to work on the logo and started walking towards, you know, um, everything else, sketching, prototyping, colour palettes, all the rest of it. Names are really interesting when it comes to brand because obviously people have lots of different views. Some people like names, some people don't like mm. names. I think the most important thing, there's two parts. One is obviously 
as founder, yep. feeling strongly about the name and yep. that it reflects the vision for the business. But secondly, I think a brand can become whatever you want it to. So there's some incredible businesses that maybe don't have the best name at first hearing. For sure. But actually you've interpreted them completely differently based on what the brand's been able to deliver. So I think it's an interesting conversation. I've definitely had people go, why did you call the business Joel Found? Oh, it's a great name. Well, I, I, I like it still. I like it still. I like it more than my first brand, Sunny Life, which was never meant to be called that. But because we had to get the website, we had to call it Sunny Life. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't get Sunny, which is what I wanted. Anyway, it's another story. So tell me about, I mean, it's incredible brand and you should be really proud of what you've been able to achieve in a relatively short period of complicated time. It has been a complicated time and I am I am proud of what we've been able to do. It's a small team and I, I know that it becomes a cliche saying small but mighty team, but it truly is. We do a lot. So I just want to go back to something you touched on in terms of that first stage of development because mm-hmm. obviously you had a lot of experience with product development, but you're making to a completely different ethos yeah. around um, around no animal byproducts yes. origin. So did you have to find a new set of vendors? Did you have to not, start not from a new, scratch? Not a new set of, um, not a new factory to make. Um, there was a factory that um, we'd worked with at Mimco, um, but in a different sort of bag category. I knew that this would be a bit of a stretch for them, but the guy that was running it, family run business, I knew that he would be supportive of me and whatever I'd started. So they really got behind it. Um, obviously had to find materials. So I went to the leather fair. Well, it's called a leather fair, but they've got a non-leather section in Hong Kong in March of 2017 and was looking for a synthetic that had, I don't like eco credentials, I suppose, that hit the, the reach standards, which are the European standards, but also um, adhered to the Californian, um, it's called Prop 65, which is also about toxicity. So I, I knew that I, I knew what price point I wanted to target. Um, at the time, the bio-based or the partially bio-based leathers, again, quotation marks, um, weren't really in market. Um, There's a little bit of talk about modern meadows, which was the, um, the sort of the, the lab-grown um, leather, um, a little bit of talk that I'd found out about at a conference in Florence, just dropping a bit of travel there <laughs> again in 2015. But, you know, what exists now did not exist back in 2017. And are you now using lots of different materials? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say lots. We've, we've definitely experimented with different materials. We st- we're still using um, the polyurethane-coated uh, recycled synthetic base um, fabrics. We use apple skin, which is about 28% of pulp that is from waste from the apple industry in Italy. And we've just launched a Miram bag. Miram is by a business called Natural Fibre Welding from um, the US, and that is 100% bio-based. So, um, we're, and we're develop well, we're sampling some other um, materials from innovators and pioneers in that space. Fascinating. And so being an ethics-led brand, mm. I think adds a layer of additional complexity and it scrutiny does. to a business, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you and I probably agree you're way more advanced than, than we are, but this is not going to be a nice to have forever. This is going to be a must have part of yes. business based on legislation, based on what's happening to the environment in every forum. Um, travel is a whole other conversation. Yes, but interestingly, like something like 2% of um, greenhouse emissions, gas yeah. emissions are coming from travel, all travel, not just air travel, whereas 15 to 25% are coming from industrial ag. 
and it could be up to 30%. There are so many more issues environmentally with the food system. Well, I think it's not just the emissions issue with travel. It's also the community, social travel creates impact in different parts of the world. So I think they're the things that we look at. It's not just one. And this is where I talk about sort of the the breadth of what ethics means to Mm. a business. Mm. And I wonder how you've managed that at the same time of having to make a a business work and have a commercial business. Um, Look, it's definitely been tough. And I think think that being vegan personally and caring about animals and having the wake-up call several years ago and recognising the trauma and the horror show that it is, it can be difficult recruiting people, it can be difficult retaining people and or finding people that actually are on board with it and can talk to the ethos with confidence and strength. Um, consumers can sometimes tend to think, so you're perfect then, are you? And then they can get more aggressive yeah, with a, questions. Yeah, there's always a bit of a backlash ready to happen, right? Yeah. Um, and that, you know, in the early days I found that quite stressful. I don't find it stressful anymore because I think firstly everyone is not your customer. And secondly, it's all a conversation and I'm happy to have the conversation. And if there's something I don't know, I will go and read about it. But I'm pretty confident. Oh, sorry. I just want to be clear. Like I do, there's plenty that I don't know. However, I am confident that with some of the naysayers, I know more than them. That's a really good point. And I think, I mean, we sort of talked about it before we started recording, but there's a huge component of education within what you do, which is you know, potentially not what you set out to do when you wanted to create an accessories brand. Yes. So now, you know, you have to be an educator and a creative and run a business, you know, and be a person at the same time. Yes. And look, I did, I did know that there would be this element to it when I started and the element of style that I wanted to ensure was, was the underpinning um, foundation for the business was hand in hand with wanting to educate, but through inspiration you know, I don't, I don't think you get people on board by telling them that they're assholes because they've had a steak for dinner. I think it's more about inspiring people through style. And then, yeah, we've got stories. We're not shying away from the stories. We're talking about what happens in the leather industry. We're talking about what happens in the animal ag industry. But we can't beat people over the head with it because it just turns people away. And also, as time has gone on, I've recognised that I also have a personal journey that I'm going down. You know, I have conversations with animal activists and people doing brave, beautiful things in the space. And that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily need to be a part of the business day to day. And I'm still trying to reconcile how I make sure the business is true to its purpose and its ethos, but also can keep the lights on. I think that comes with the authenticity that you apply. And I mean, basing everything in some degree of truth Mm. so you can see that so that's amazing something you and I've talked about that I don't think gets that much airtime is the idea of solitude when you're an entrepreneur and Mm. and that it is sometimes a lonely pursuit Mm. um and and even if you have teams even if you have partners that you know that you're often walking the Mm, road alone definitely how do you manage that I get angry quite often yeah, I get a bit pissed off about it. Um, not quite often. I was that was supposed to be a bit of a joke, but you didn't smile. Um, <laughs> I was like worried you might get angry. No, I I feel. Um, I guess I try and relax by listening to inspiring things, be it a podcast or to read a book or to spend time in nature. I, um, you know, I have adopted some habits into my life, like the cold shower in the morning, um, a lot more exercise than I used to do five years ago. I, I try and remind myself that, that there are, that I am just a little speck in the world and there are plenty of people that are going through 
sole business ownership. Um, I've actually got great people around me. No one truly understands the, the pressure, the expense, the, the ups and downs, but I'm getting better at recognizing that it's not their job to really understand it. I, you know, I, I have to hold this weight on my shoulders. It's the decision that I made to start this business. So um, how, I guess I don't know whether I answered whether I, how do I handle it? I just handle it day to day and try and make myself stronger and more resilient. And it sounds like some of the things you're talking about are this, you know, the benefit of maturity and, yeah. and wisdom, right? Like it, Yeah. And, you know, I used to think that like when we started the business and we took a space in a co-working environment in, in Kensington called Click, um, you know, I, st- I established the business at 47 and we launched when I was just shy of turning 48. My contemporaries in that shared space were all sub 30 and I oscillated between, well, I should know my shit because I've been in the industry for a long time and can you show me how to do a Facebook ad? You know, it was it was quite a, a vulnerable, confronting time. It's like a bit of mature age entrepreneurialism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a little bit of um, imposter sort of syndrome as well. Like, you know, I'm I'm still learning how to be an entrepreneur. You know, I think I was definitely, I had an entrepreneurial spirit when I was leading Mimco but it's not the same it's not the when same. it's your own bank account and your own um, everything's got to, you know, be sort of a trajectory from your own energy. Like you have to fire this thing. And and I think a big part of that, and we've sort of definitely talked about that today, but it's the culture build because you're driving that culture build. Right? It's, it's part of you. Yeah. So often if you're walking into a role, that's an established culture that you have to figure out. Yeah. But you're actually creating from scratch. So I think, you know. And I've I've made mistakes on that front. And, you know, you also can't take responsibility for every single person's personality and how things have manifested in the team, but I can take responsibility for how I've recruited and how I've built the communication channels within a business. And yeah, I think that the one of the Farfetch founders, or maybe there is only one far anyway. He's, Jose. Jose, exactly. Yeah. He said, um, you should always hire for cultural fit. Tech skills you can always learn. And so, you know, sometimes I found that to be an indulgent thought. It's like, oh, that cheers. Like, okay, so who's going to teach them all the technical skills but it there is such a strong element of truth to it that cultural fit being able to contribute to the conversation in a small business you know how we're going to grow this thing how we're going to how are we going to build the culture what are we going to do to make sure we're a, a team that supports each other and is united you know i think yeah i think it's absolutely the right um path in recruitment um so on on that note in terms of mentors and and entrepreneurs like are there people that inspire you and brands that inspire you in how you're growing sounds beast i look i think there's there's brands um that i look at that i think are doing a great job um there's viron or viron in france um and the sort of that's like the diffusion i'd imagine brand of rombo um french guy vegan it's so cool it's so apocalyptic their styling, alien almost, on a different path. I think Alame is looking beautiful. But I think from a founder point of view, there are individuals that have done an astounding job, like um, Hayley Worley at Sheet Society. Um, you know, it's a it's a commercial brand, but Hayley had a space next to us in the, in the co-working thing, co-working entity, single-handedly just there plugging away. I mean, clearly it's like it's a massive business now. A lot of respect for Hayley. Um, Shannon Martinez of Smith and Daughters, I think, does an amazing job. Um, Susanna George, Urban List, brilliant. It's not just the fashion space, I guess, that I'm inspired by. It's about 
um, individuals that have not just created something and not just pulled themselves up financially to do it, but kept themselves learning and focused on continuous improvement. And, you know, you, you have to teach yourself resilience. It, it's those traits, I think, that I admire the most because I think they're the traits that I want to have cultivated in myself. Absolutely. Well, I think everything you're talking to, you definitely have. And I think one unifier is the integrity with all those brands, how they have, how they've approached the evolution. Mm. And I, you know, I think to me, that's probably the most valuable part of a brand, Mm -hmm. the integrity with which you hold it. Yes. So it's been amazing to talk about the career journey and the success of your work with Sun's Beast. And now I want to drill in more to travel, which we've Mm -hmm. obviously talked about quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But tell me about your first memorable work trip. The first memorable work trip was going to Pitifilati in Florence, I, um, which is the yarn fair. So um, I worked with a design consultant who had a long relationship with Country Road. She was the person who, she was UK based and she would sketch pieces, send the faxes through. <laughs> it was faxed Fax. back then. I know. Um, and the product development team of which I was heading up at that time. Uh, would do the work to get everything briefed with the factory. Uh, the factories were in Hong Kong and in southern China. Uh, so I was fortunate to go to Pity and meet up with this consultant and meet all the yarn spinners. Um, and then probably, I don't know, wasn't too much later that CR made the decision to um, not work with the consultant and elevate me to the design manager role. Uh, so I would go to Pity solo. Um but that first trip was amazing and um, at the time CR also worked with an agent in Florence uh, so they would come to the fair as well. So I became good friends with um, the woman that would come to the fair with us and um, show us around. The Italian spinners were, um, they just, they had parties up in Fiesole, up in the hills above Florence um, or along the Arno, like hire a palazzo and have an amazing event. So I was just exposed to all all of this, um, not just the yarn, um, and they're so passionate about their yarn, um, but the, um, like, I don't know whether you've ever been to Pitti Uomo, but, you know, it's in the same place that Pitti Falati is held. The style that everyone has, it is just gorgeous. I haven't been, but I'm, I would love to go. And I think what you're talking about is how it's um, – super immersive you know yeah. that it's not you're walking into a building and then walking out but the no. whole city around you the history um I think when you're t- telling me about this I remember when I went to Maison Objet in Paris for mm-hmm. the first time um I'd been to a lot of shows particularly in China where we were manufacturing out of mm-hmm. and I remember and it's funny because I was just thinking it was a leather goods um, mm-hmm. supplier and they'd been manufacturing for 500 plus years and mm-hmm. I never met at a trade show someone who'd been manufacturing for that long mm. and I just thought a lot about heritage and the evolution of manufacturing mm. where people can get so invested in something and want to perfect it mm. that I hadn't been exposed to and it changed my whole view of, of product and, um, you know, I really aspired to more craftsmanship through those through yeah. that exposure. I had always enjoyed making things myself and the fact that I got into knitwear after leaving RMIT was a gift because then I started learning about yarn and realising that you make the fabric when you... You, when you are using the machine, like the, the piece of yarn, you're making the garment as you're making fabric. Like you really have to adopt and learn technical acumen in order to be a knitwear designer. Um, and the fact that I was able to go to these yarn fairs um, and then, you know, out to dinner at night and occasionally, you know, as I said, a spinner would have a party, um, which was 
there were several over the years and they're just magnificent. This is a revelation being in the travel industry now as well, the, the social aspect of the shows because it's all about hospitality. Yes. So every night there's parties and yep. it's super gregarious. It's very different to a lot of the China fairs that I went to for 20 years. So yes. I'm quite happy to be at Cannes for the fair than oh my goodness. Canton. Absolutely. Yes, I've done a lot of fairs in Hong Kong as well, both the leather fair, the jewellery fair, um, the gift fair. There's, you know, they're they're that's much more, it feels like business, you know, and it is business as well in Italy, but it's a slower business. It's a conversation. It's an espresso. It's a chat. Yeah. And so with this travel that you've done for a long time, mm-hmm. how do you plan those trips? Obviously the, the time you're talking about the fax time, it was much harder to know where to be, when to be yeah. without, you know, the internet. I think um, I've never really gotten over the gratitude that I have for the fact that I travel like from when I was 29 to now at 53 I still feel so fortunate that I can jump on a plane and go somewhere and actually that can be business and I can achieve a lot so I I've always had this sort of um over deliver like just just work work really hard and get as much as you can out of this experience so you know, I plan the trips before I go um, to make sure that there's no last minute bookings that are required and that might be booking trains or planes or a pickup um, with a car. I, um, I can do that for you from now on. if you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I actually, <laughs> I actually enjoy the process yeah. of it though. I love the research angle. Um, yeah, I like putting together an itinerary on a, you know, a Word document, the times that I'm going to get places what I'm going to be doing that day, whether I'm meeting with people, whether I'm looking at retail, whether there's a gallery exhibition that I want to get to, um, whatever. Like I like to plan it all. I do a practice pack and then I cull. Um, I roll rather than fold. And um, and then I, do you maintain the roll when you're on the road? Absolutely. Oh, I wow. unpack as soon as I get to a hotel. And then see. re-roll everything. Yes, I re-roll. <laughs> I see. I like in theory the role, yep. but then when it comes to moving around, I don't want to have to re-roll and yeah. things. I don't know. I feel like most people would agree that things get bigger when you travel, even if you don't buy things. Yeah, definitely. The stuff you have feels like it yes. has more volume. But than I do when feel like if you, if you roll, it does stay relatively contained. It's it's shoes that are the killer. Kath is all about the roll. Absolutely. The forward roll. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you talked about it before, but I think it's really interesting, and a lot of people who don't necessarily travel a lot for work don't appreciate how much you have to do when you're traveling and they see yeah. maybe you at the party and they think yeah, that's it's all, all glamorous. Yeah. But, the, you know, the days are really full because you obviously have the work that you're going over there to do. You have the work you have to do at home yes. and maintaining conversations. You have jet lag. You have. Yeah. So talk Definitely. a little, little bit about like these crazy days that you have. Like when you, if you wake up for jet lag, do you get straight on the emails? and? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, I try to adjust to the local time as quickly as I possibly can. I try and sleep as much as I can on the plane. Um, I didn't used to do this, but now I definitely try and, um, like, I limit alcohol intake. I've had many years of definitely not doing that and having plenty of wine on the plane, but it just it stuffs you at the other end. Um, so stay hydrated, drink lots of water, get into the local time zone. But I generally get up very early, deal with Australia when I'm away, um, you know, beginning of the day and end of the day. And then, as I said, depending on what I'm doing, whether I'm meeting with people, whether I'm walking the streets, I, I have a plan for what I want to achieve in that day. And, you know, now that content is such a big part of 
what we have to create in the business. I'm constantly thinking about, is it a still life with the bag? Is it me talking to the camera? I'm in Copenhagen at the summit at the moment, you know, whatever. There's, um, there's got to be a plan for that as well. Really impressive. I need to do more of that. So I want to know some of the more obscure places the work has taken you. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how obscure these are. Nairobi was an amazing trip and not just to Nairobi um, city, but to go like to drive two hours into the countryside and meet up with um, Maasai women um, who were doing um, a bag and a beaded project um, with Mimco. Uh, so when I was at Memco, um, we started the Ethical Fashion Initiative um, collaboration and myself and the design manager at the time toofed off to Nairobi and met the EFI people and then went off into out of out nowhere <laughs> um, and were greeted by dancing Maasai women as they walked down the dirty path, the, yes. the, sort of the dusty path towards us. It was like it was so emotional. It was amazing. And then you saw them work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We sat underneath the acacia tree with them and their children. Actually, we did a little video. In fact, I think it might still be on the Mimco site. They might have forgotten that I'm actually still on that site. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to find out about it and take me down. Um, but I actually gave one of my earrings to one of the little kids there because they were like, what's that? Um, Haiti was definitely another um, another place that was unusual to visit and it was maybe five years after the first big earthquake that was a massive learning experience I had no idea how Haiti had been treated by the world was that for the same program with same program it was the EFI again um who are a pretty amazing bunch of people Simone Cipriani um, heads that up uh Nairobi the the hub in Nairobi that they had developed was a lot more established than what they had in um Haiti um but they were they were trying to you know, give work to marginalised communities. They were trying to ensure that um, they could help them build an enterprise. I, I met an anthropologist there. I was introduced to an amazing anthropologist who had worked in Haiti as well as across the globe in um, organisations, non-profits. And there's a lot of corruption, you know, it's pretty awful. It's something I think a lot about in the context of travel business mm -hmm. because you often think about the human rights issues associated mm. with destinations or the political mm -hmm. issues but I think what's interesting and you've touched on it is that it's really important to remember there are real, real people in these places yeah and that's where I think it's de definitely not to overlook some of these challenges but it's to say well when you have the opportunity to connect with someone yeah the other side of the world in an obscure village yeah that's when you know the humanity highlighted yeah. and we see that we're actually not at that different you know people have similar aspirations, similar protectiveness over their families or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that's one of the benefits of travel. I also feel very fortunate. So when I started traveling at Country Road, um, and as I said, Hong Kong and China, yes, but the Pity Filati trip was the first sort of European trip that I did. And because I was working on knitwear, Pity is one of the first fairs of the year, whereas Premier Vision in Paris is later. So the gang of designers would travel to PV together, but I was traveling solo. So I got used to quite quickly traveling by myself and it can often lead to opportunities of being invited to conversations where you meet an anthropologist and you talk about the history of Haiti and the, the exploitation that has gone on with workers and how they've been paid, etc. cetera. Um, so what initially felt like, shit, I'm going to be traveling by myself actually became, I think the building block for, you know, developing resilience and independence and being able to, um, you know, be in 
um, interesting conversations with people. I think an uh, um, uh, uh, example of that is the air, airport lounge. Mm. So everyone in an airport lounge has a story by definition, where yes. are you going? Yeah. Right? And so often you have the most interesting conversations with people in the lounge. That's so true. My um, most memorable one was I was, it was a packed lounge in LA and um, I sat down and I was speaking to a soldier who was a British soldier based in outside of Vegas who was going to serve in Afghanistan. Right. And he's, he left to catch his flight and then the woman who ran the most luxurious cruise line company in the world took his seat. So it was like the yeah. most polar opposite people you could get. Yeah, yeah. And both great conversations. Um, t- tell me the places that inspire you every day of the week. Well, Rome is definitely up there. I love Rome. Um, I've only been a few times but I've stayed there um, when I left, when John and I travelled for three months post leaving the big role, um, got to Rome, loved it, decided that at the end of the trip we were going to finish in the Greek islands. Um, I said to him, I'm coming back to Rome and I'm going to study Italian for a month and, you know, you can stay or you can go back to Australia but I'm, I'm going to become a student for a month. Like a delusion, I thought it was going to be like fluent in Italian. And how how is your Italian? Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not amazing. Um, I think my accent's all right, but yeah, definitely. Uh, John's like, you're not going to be fluent. I was like, that's just not going to happen. Um, but an amazing experience. You know, where I was living was gorgeous. Just yeah, just soaking up the city and walking around that city at night and just the illumination of the 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 stone and the marble and yeah, it's it's magnificent. It's so so vibrant. Um, I love, oh, I like lots of places. I love Berlin. I love the energy in Berlin. Um, Venice, just, I find, um, Venice, I actually think is an enchanted city. Like there is just something there that is, particularly in winter when it's foggy and misty, it's just got magic in the air. I don't know whether you've ever read Jeanette Winters and the Passion, but that is set in Venice. And the first time I went to Venice, I had just finished reading The Passion and it's we like, love We <gasps> love additions to the reading list, so oh, that's good. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Um, I like lots of different cities but probably um, as far as um, I love Milan as well and I'm going at, um, in, in a few weeks. I like, like I love Italy and as I said, I've had a lot of experience in Florence and Florence I still really enjoy as well. Rome sort of has got, there's the history there, there's the there's a little bit of grottiness there, um, there's... There's a rawness to it, I suppose. Like Paris is beautiful, but I think Rome has just got this, um, it's it's a little bit more raw. It's really interesting the places you've identified because I think they've got such long histories but they've been deeply cultural mm. histories and, and art inspired and, you know, like that's something that as soon as you go out into the world, you know, Australia is such a young country still, and obviously non-Indigenous. Well, not, yeah, not Non-Indigenous but young. Um, in terms of in our contemporaries, you know, like we haven't grown up with a lot of history around us. Colonial history. Yes. Co- yes. yes. That's true. I don't think we necessarily appreciate natural history though. A- absolutely. And the 65,000 years that Indigenous folk have lived on this land. Um, but, and I understand, I, but I, I've also grown up to appreciate buildings and the things that we have identified as signifying history. Yes. It's a, it's a, it is a, it's just how you see it though, isn't it? A hundred percent. And yeah. I think you're right. And in terms of the, our um, recognition of nature. Mm. And I think again, that's something that travel unlocks is this context within nature. I always um, look at what gardens and parks are close by to be able to visit when I'm traveling. 
Um, and then when I've had more time, like, you know, when we've travelled through the UK, there's some amazing old gardens in the UK, particularly in the south, the Lost Gardens of Heligan, um, Project Eden. Um, I love walking through those places. But in Rome, um, the Borghese Gardens, um, uh, which sort of leads to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Rome, which is a bloody amazing museum, amazing gallery. Yeah, there's yeah so much to experience there. So on that note, maybe let's drill into a couple of your favourite destinations and yep. some of the recommendations you can make for them. So obviously you've given the listeners a lot of different ideas for how they might plan travel, but I know you go to Bali a lot, so tell me about Kath's Bali. Yeah, I mean I've stayed in different places in Bali. I have stayed a lot at Uma up in Ubud and that would be um, like if I just wanted a calm, quiet, chill out, I, that would be a return destination for me. So I've spent a lot of time in Ubud, Seminyak, obviously, um, more recently Chenggu. Um, this last trip that we just did, we were in Umalas, which is about 10, hour, 10 hours, 10 minutes on bike from um, central Chenggu. Bali for me has changed over the 20 or so years that I visited. I don't so much need to be sitting at Potato Head and drinking all day and jumping in and out of the pool. Um, Have you been there recently I love though? Potato Have you, Head. No, I've stayed there. The, yes. <laughs> the Rem Cool House design building yes. is a must visit for anyone who loves yes. design. I um yeah, I'm definitely not dissing Potato Head. <laughs> the, the beach club side of it though, no, no, agreed. It's fun Und for a day, yeah. but it's just not my scene anymore. Yes. Um, I stayed at Potato Head earlier this year. Like I, I love that environment. Um, I probably just you know long for a little bit of solitude, good food. Um, a Bloody Mary and the sunset. I mean, the hospitality in Bali is incredible. Yes, and they're friendly and, yeah, they're just divine. Um, it's a beautiful place. On that note, how, how do you immerse yourself in, in these places? What are, you, what are the things you do? Um, I, I mean, as I said earlier, like I unpack as soon as I get anywhere I'm going. I go for a walk out on the streets, get a sense of, you know, where, where I'm going to get a coffee from. I, I like to feel like a local as quickly as possible. Um, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. It's I, um, Amanda Henderson, who I, you know, I love and who mm, you know well. Yes. Um, she said, had this great quote that she doesn't visit a place. She lives there temporarily. I've, I've heard her say that. And I, I love that quote too. I totally agree. I like to feel like I'm living in a place. I mean, when I say I stayed in Rome to learn Italian for a month, like in my mind, I lived in Rome <laughs> for a month. Definitely. I went to local like I was, I was a local that for was one my, month. In, in Italy, I love going to get my espresso. Un espresso, por favore. And like, <laughs> you want a coffee. And, like, and it's like one euro yeah. <laughs> because it's controlled. That cost of coffee is controlled. Versus well, can, you imagine the, can you imagine the riots if they changed it? Yes, I can imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so, and the hand <laughs> so where are you headed to next? Um, I'm headed to, I'm, I'm going to fly in and out of London, um, as in bookend the trip. Um, Heathrow and then I'm doing I'm going to Linea Pelle which is the leather and materials fair in Milan and then I'm going to be in Paris for a few days um, I'm going to take a couple of days off and visit friends who are renovating a chateau in um, regional France which is going to be gorgeous to um, see that. Is it on YouTube? It certainly is. Because I feel like you're not renovating a chateau if it's not on YouTube. They're, they've got a very good following on Instagram and they do um, YouTube content and so I'm visiting them and looking forward to that. Then after Paris, I'm going to Barcelona um, and then Madrid and then Porto in Portugal. And Amazing. And back to London. Have you been to Porto? I have, but not for, 
I went there with Country Road. Um, CR used to do garment dyed knitwear. Um, Portugal is quite a good knitwear destination. Um, there's a lot of interesting things happening in Portugal. It's a really high profile destination at the moment. Yeah. Um, as is Madrid, which is a wonderful I city. I love Madrid. Yeah. I've only been to Madrid once and I thought this is bloody fantastic. I need to spend more time here. Agreed. So I'm glad you get to go back there. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, there's a lot of travel and there's, you know, some short stays here and there. And I'm doing a mix of hotel and Airbnb. Um, I think if I'm not comfortable and confident in a city and I've got to, and I want to spend the whole next day there and I can't leave my luggage, I don't do Airbnb. Right. I do hotel. But like London, I'm super comfortable. Do Airbnb there. Milan, I've I've booked a gorgeous apartment. I'm so excited to stay there, to live there for a week. Yes. Um, and hopefully the sun is shining in Milano like it was last time. It's funny. I I tend to prefer hotels due to the design yeah. consideration. Like often with Airbnb, it's hard to find. I know, but I enjoy that hunt. Yeah. So last September um, we went to Lunia Pele. Um, uh, Valeria, who was working with us, uh, she was our design manager um, and V's an old friend as well. We worked together at Mimco. So I found an amazing Airbnb, top floor, no lift. So hauling suitcases, that was a little Gee, nightmare. You lost me. Yeah, <laughs> but once we opened the door, black and white tiles, like beautifully designed, terrazza, look, overlooking the apart, other apartments. Like it just felt like living like a local. Yeah, and V um, is fluent in Italian. Like so, you. Yeah, exactly. Like me, <laughs> totes like me, exactly. <laughs> Um, so she was amazing. She was like able to get things happening. So I'm not going to have that security blanket this time. Love hearing all about the places your work is taking you. Now what we like to do to wrap up the podcast is do a round of quick fire questions. Okay. So this is just the first thing that springs to mind, all travel related, obviously. Yep. Um, so I give you a ticket to anywhere right now. Where are you going to go? Um, anywhere right now. I would probably go to Amsterdam. Okay. So that might answer the next question. Your favorite city. It's not that. I just haven't been to Amsterdam for a right. while. And it was very, there was pressure. Um, my favourite city, my favourite city. Rome would have to be the favourite city, yes. Favourite hotel? Um, there's two. Can I name two? Sure. There's one in Antwerp called the Hotel de Witt Lille. I think it means the White Lily. Um, yes. Beautiful, beautiful hotel. And then the Conservatorium in Amsterdam is stunning. And Antwerp's definitely worth a visit, right? Antwerp is amazing. And yeah. being a Dries fan, I just, that city is always a special city for me. Is that where Axel Vervoort's compound is? I think it is in Antwerp. Probably. Yeah. And it it's sounds, incredible. It it's like this Belgian. whole, it's this whole precinct that he's right. invented. So that's definitely worth a visit. What's your favourite airline? Qantas. And on the plane, do you watch movies or you work? I do both. Oh, you can yeah. work on a plane. That's impressive. Yeah, definitely. I I think 24 hours of travel is such a powerful chunk of time. I think, oh, I could sleep for five hours and I can do this for some working time and then I can switch my brain off and watch a bit of television and then I can go back to working. I've got – and no one contacts me. It's a really – it's a gift. That's very disciplined. I'm excited about flying. And similarly, favourite airport? Um, I like Charles de Gaulle. Design-wise? The design-wise, but also you can get a manicure when you're waiting for – if there's a delay. Oh. Um, yeah, we did a, I did a trip with my sister a few years ago. We went to um, – it was all centred around Vienna because AHA were playing an acoustic concert in Vienna and we we were snowed out. It was winter in Charles de Gaulle and so we went and got manicures. So when you've got a layover of eight hours, you want you want a airport that's got services available. Best country for food? Well, look, I have to say that view has changed as I've gone vegan over the years. I've been 
um, vegan diet for, or plant-based, I should say, for sort of over six years. Um, London is pretty amazing for vegan food now. Um, and Rome is definitely, Italy's gotten better. Um, but I'd say it's probably Berlin or London. I'd love to get some London recommendations from you. Yeah. Mildred's is amazing for food and also doesn't sacrifice style and ambiance, which I do find sometimes the vegan scene can. Definitely not with Sans Beasts. No. no um, uh, friendliest country. I can't say all of Indonesia, but I would have to say Bali, Bali is yep. the friendliest island. And, and this question's probably for my personal interest. Any memorable celebrity encounters while you've travelled? Not uh, your, not your thing. Not really. I mean, I've seen people, but I don't, I don't fan. I do. Person so overseas for me is a safe space because no one knows you, so you can. <laughs> Paul Kelly. Ah, oh, that's good. In Barcelona. Wow. Yeah, See, that's a countryman. So you're friends already. Yeah. Well, I was traveling with RMIT. So it was many years ago and we'd gone to this Gaudi thing and the, he was there and I was like, hi, I'm Australian as well. <laughs> like, cheers. Got a photo <laughs> with him. Um, and this question's for you, your preferred carry-on bag. I just take one of our totes. Yeah. Um, at the moment, yeah, the one that I'm carrying at the moment is what I'll be taking with me. Um, look, I think when you're doing trains in particular, not just planes, but trains I like to make sure that it's something that sits comfortably on top of the suitcase feels safe um zip shut yeah and I'll, I'll have a small crossbody bag as well that I feel safe with that I can put my passport in no, no money belts from Sun's Beast no oddly <laughs> enough <laughs> remember when we were young that was the first thing you had to buy when you were going overseas yes. and then fill it with traveler's checks yeah traveler's checks yeah when I first started traveling with Country Road we had traveler's checks it's a different had time to, I had to cash them at the um the hotel Concierge. It's a different time, kids. It's so, such <laughs> a different time. Kath, it's been incredible to talk to you so today. I really appreciate you your time and learning more about your story. For the listeners to learn more about Sans Beast, visit sansbeast.com or all of the socials at Sans Beast, um, and we'll include those links on the podcast. Fabulous. Thanks, Joel. 